0: I want to share a psalm with you that the Lord put on my heart during first service. And um, Psalm 135, if you want to turn there. My Bible's falling apart. Psalm 135, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Praise Him, O servants of the Lord. You who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and earth, in the seas and in the deeps, he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings for the rain. He brings forth the wind from his treasuries. It's just a beautiful picture of God. It's just a beautiful picture of, as I was worshiping, first worship set of first service. I, was, I just found myself reading that, and God really impressed it on my heart. And, and, and I wanted to use that psalm that God gave me to, to kind of introduce what we're going to be reading about today, because sometimes we come to church and, and, and we don't have that perspective that God does what He wants. Sometimes we come to church or we, we approach God with our own understandings of who He is, and, 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 and then we find ourselves disappointed in Him because He doesn't meet our expectations. And, and if you've ever felt that way, I, I just want to encourage you that John the Baptist found himself feeling similarly We're going to look at that in this passage we're studying today, Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to read the first six verses. It's going to be up on the screen as well. It says, When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we be looking for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for truth. We gather together here today, Lord, to, to worship you and enjoy you and love you and just ask you, God, to fill this place with your Holy Spirit, God, that you would anoint our hearts and our ears and our minds, that, that, we, that we might understand the message that you have for us today, Lord. Anoint my lips, God, that I might speak your will and your word today, God. We pray this, Jesus, for your glory and in your name. Amen. So here's this question we're going to look at today. Jesus asking John the Baptist, you know, are you really him? Are you really the Messiah? Are you who I think you are or should I keep looking? And Jesus takes this question that John asks him and he uses it as an opportunity to answer John and to teach about who he is and and, and what this kingdom is that he's, he's come to usher in. There's some really specific things Jesus says about himself in this passage. And see, the context that this is coming from is the, the Jews were expecting their Messiah. The old, through the Old Testament, they're promised a Messiah, a deliverer, a Savior, someone who's going to come and, and free them, set the captives free. And there's many, many prophecies, the old book of Isaiah practically, outlining what that would look like. And there was a lot of talk in that day about how many prophets would, would come before the Messiah. Some some thought many prophets would come. Some thought one prophet. And that's kind of where John's coming from when he asks this question to Jesus. Like, are you really him? Or maybe should we be waiting for someone else? And considering the culture of that day, for anyone else, it would have been a really fair question. You know, are you really the Messiah? Or, you know. But for John, it just seems odd that he would doubt now. Because John, up until this point, had boldly preached, had boldly declared Jesus as the Messiah. His ministry was one of declaring Jesus as Messiah, proclaiming that the Messiah had come, baptizing people and calling them to repent. In fact, John baptized Jesus. He said that he wasn't worthy to carry Jesus' sandals. In chapter 3 of Matthew, he says this about Jesus, "'Behold the Lamb of God, whom has come to take away the sin of the world.'" And now he's doubting, now he's asking, you know, are you really him? And I think the reason it seems so crazy to me is, is, is Jesus' baptism. Matthew chapter 3, if you want to look at that, um, verses 13 through 17 reads, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And so John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and alighting upon him, landing on him, and a voice from heaven said, "This is my Son, whom I love; with him I am well pleased." Okay, John saw this. Okay, this is something that John is a witness to this event. He, he seemed to get it. He seemed to understand Jesus as Messiah. He preached him. He saw it from God. You don't get much more clear than heaven opening up, animals, you know, falling out of heaven and landing on someone, and then this voice from heaven saying, this is my son, you know. You know, John's ministry was radical. He said radical things. He confronted the religious leaders of the day. He called them vipers. He confronted their hypocrisy. I mean, the guy ate bugs, Right? You know, when I was in Sunday school as a little kid, we used these big flannel boards, you know, with some generic background scene, and you put, like, you know, Moses up on it. Or, and John the Baptist always wore this gnarly-looking, like, mini skirt, you know. John the Baptist got the full-on short end of the stick. He was a radical man, wore a camel hair outfit with a, with a leather belt, ate locusts and honey, wild honey. He was sold out, man. But what he did and what he said... The craziest part of it was what he said about Jesus, proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah and the things that he said the Messiah was going to do. And before we get too judgmental and and, and kind of looking at John and going, gosh, how could he doubt? How could he doubt now? The Lord really impressed on my heart that this happens to me. I can see myself in this, that, you know, God has proven himself to me. I have no doubt that Jesus is God I have no doubt that, that there is a God. Yet, sometimes in my life, things don't go quite as I planned, and I find myself experiencing doubt. Have you guys ever experienced that doubt? And you're like, what's going on? Because we learn things about God, and we fall in love with God. We come to church, and we, we get Christian friends. You know, we say prayers. When we're eating out, because God likes it when we say prayers, you know, when we eat. And, you know, we tell our coworkers about Jesus. We say, God bless you. All these things that we think God wants. And, and then all of a sudden, hardship strikes. You know, or some relationship goes sour, or we lose our job, or our kid gets sick. And we start questioning. We're like, wait a minute. I kind of thought something. We had a little agreement here. I thought we had like a little plan here. And we doubt And it's good for us to stop and take a look at this this prophet that was sent by God to declare the Messiah, doubting and and asking Jesus, are you really him? It's good for us to look at that today. So why is he doubting? Why is he missing Jesus here? And verse 2 in chapter 11 gives gives us a really good clue. It says, while John was in prison, right? See, John had been thrown in prison by Herod, Herod Antipas. He was the ruler of of that region. And um, no one questioned Herod. No one questioned his authority. No one questioned what he did. And um, what had happened is Herod's brother, Philip, was married, and Herod just took his brother's wife, took Philip's wife, Herodias, to be his own. And so she came and lived with him in the palace, and no one said anything. The religious leaders wouldn't dare say anything to him. But John the Baptist confronts him, and he says... You can't do that. That's against, that's against the law of God. John the Baptist was bold enough to, to confront Herod. And Herod throws him in jail. So John sits in prison, just kind of wondering, well, what did I miss? Here I am proclaiming this Messiah that's come to deliver and save, that's coming in power. And I confront evil in the world, and now I'm thrown in jail? Because John had claimed that Jesus had come to set things right in the world. He claimed that one was coming, he would say, one is coming who will bring wrath to those who do evil, who will, who will set things back in their right order. In Matthew chapter 3, he says this, he says, starting in verse 10, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water and repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. That's a powerful, powerful picture that John is preaching of this Messiah that's coming. And in that culture of which John was a part in Israel at that time, Israel had very specific expectations about what the Messiah would look like, about what that power would look like. Israel expected the Messiah to unify the people, that all the different factions, all the different people that had this opinion or that movement or whatever, the Messiah would unify Israel. Israel would be one people again. Israel expected the Messiah to deliver them from Roman rule the Jews were living under an oppressive Roman regime, and it was just bare minimum, you know, theology of the Messiah 101 for them in that culture was that, well, obviously, the Messiah is going to get rid of the Roman rule. I mean, clearly, that, that would be how he would confront an evil power here on earth. That was assumed. Israel also expected the Messiah to set prisoners free, set people who had been imprisoned by Rome free. And John would have probably had the same expectations of the Messiah. And so how is he right now just sitting there in jail just knowing all this? And what's happening here is John's idea of what Jesus should be doing his his thoughts and ideas, his perception of what the Messiah would do is different than what Jesus is doing. Things aren't playing out for John as the way he understood they would. And so he starts to doubt. He starts to doubt. I'm sure he started mulling over these prophecies, going, Well, doesn't Jesus know that the Messiah is supposed to set captives free and here I sit? Why am I sitting in this stinking dungeon right now? Jesus is supposed to be more radical than I am. You know, I'm wearing a scratchy mini skirt, eating bugs, you know, and Jesus dines with tax collectors. You know, I mean, I could just see myself sitting there going, What the heck is going on? Where is this power? See, Jesus hadn't done what John expected him to do or what John wanted him to do. John had set expectations for Jesus that Jesus wasn't meeting, that Jesus wasn't fulfilling. And it's these unmet expectations that cause John to doubt. And this is what I believe this entire passage is about. And this is, this is, this is what I want us to really lay hold of and, and, and get a grip of on today is that Jesus doesn't always do what we want, and he doesn't always do what we expect. But the beauty of this passage is that John questions Jesus, and Jesus answers him. And he answers John in a, in a, in a, in way, a way that was just beautiful, sweet music to John's ears. He answers him with Scripture. He answers him with, with the prophet Isaiah's words, with prophetic fulfillment. And he, and he says... Verses four and five, he says, go back and report to John what you hear and see, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. See, Jesus is telling John, hey, just hang in there. I'm fulfilling prophecy. I'm doing what the Messiah was foretold to to be supposed to be doing. Don't Don't lose hope. This is just a foretaste, just a foreshadow of the kingdom that's coming. Just hang on. I know I don't look like what you think I should look like. I, I, don't, I know my kingdom is, is different than what you're expecting, but just hang on. And then at verse 6, Jesus, he shifts. He shifts and he says, blessed is he who doesn't stumble on account of me. And this is where Jesus shifts, and he's addressing kind of the larger audience, and, and, he's, and, he's, and he's saying, you know, don't, don't trip over me right now. Don't miss this, because I am the Messiah. If you trip over me, you're going to miss the whole thing. You're going you're to miss the kingdom. It's not what you're expecting. See, Jesus is saying in my kingdom that power and authority is, is rooted in the Word. He answers John with Scripture. He doesn't give him some theological exposition of the Messiah. He says, no, look, Isaiah said this, this, this. I'm doing that. I know it's not what you're expecting, but I'm doing it. He says that the power in his kingdom is demonstrated in humble acts of service. He's saying, I'm healing. I'm restoring. I'm restoring life. I'm preaching hope to those who have no hope. Again, not in the way that John expects. And most importantly, this deliverance that Israel was expecting, this white horse, you know, campaign that they were expecting, just this Messiah to come in power and just kick Rome out and and free slaves and let the prisoners loose. The way Jesus brings this power is through persecution and death. See, Jesus assures them that he is the Messiah. I am the one. but his kingdom won't look like what they're expecting. The people wanted an expected political deliverance, and Jesus actually comes in power against their expectations. Despite their expectations, he comes in power. And, and the word that Jesus uses here, he's saying, don't, don't stumble over me, don't, don't, don't let me trip you up. In the Greek, the, the ancient Greek, that, that word is scandalizo. And it means, in this context, it means to see in another what I disapprove of and what hinders me from acknowledging his authority. And another meaning in this context would be to cause one to judge unfavorably or unjustly of another since one who stumbles or whose foot gets entangled feels annoyed. I know that's a mouthful, but it's a specific meaning. It means that it's something that's just an annoying thing that catches your foot up and then trips you. He's saying, don't let me be that to you because I'm showing you my power and I'm showing you my kingdom. And it's an interesting word that he uses, scandalizo. In, In the modern English, we get our word scandalous from it or scandal. And our word has a has a very specific meaning that's that's a little a little different than than the scope that Jesus uses the word here. But but there's enough of a similarity to be able to say that in a sense, Jesus is saying his kingdom will seem scandalous to men, in so much as they're expecting something of him, and he comes in power and might that they don't recognize. But he's calling himself the Messiah. That's going to seem scandalous to men. He's saying. Don't let my scandalous kingdom trip you up. Just because it seems scandalous to you, don't be caught off guard. Don't be tripped up. His kingdom is unconventional. His kingdom is, seems crazy to them. And it's an interesting thought. You know, that, that idea that, that Jesus could be perceived as scandalous. And some of us sitting here might be saying, you know, not, not my Jesus, you know, My Jesus isn't controversial or radical or contentious. No, my Jesus is nice, you know. My Jesus is really kind and he's soothing. He's comforting. He blesses me. And today, do you find yourself wondering who this scandalous Jesus is? When When you look at the Jesus that you know, the Jesus that you have expectations of, and then you hear about this Jesus that reveals himself in Matthew 11, do you... I just want to encourage you to, to look at this Jesus because John the Baptist is, and he's, he's saying, wait a minute, something's not adding up here. Something's, something's, I think I'm missing it. And have you ever felt like John? Have you ever put your hope and your trust in your idea or your version of, of Jesus? Or Christianity, and then been let down? Have you ever tried really hard to be a good Christian? Kind of like Al was alluding to, the one-year Bible thing. You know, you try to be a good Christian and read your Bible every day. And then after a while, you kind of get disillusioned and you start questioning, are you even there, God? Like, you know, I'm kind of doing this. Because I thought we sort of had this agreement. Many of us work for God. We do things for God. And then God blesses us in return, you know, with money or wealth, and then all of a sudden when life takes a sharp left turn and our kid gets cancer or we lose our job, we're looking around going, what, what's happened? Wait, I, where's Jesus? Where's this kind, sweet guy that I've been worshiping? This guy that I just approach every day and ask for rent money? This guy that I approach every day and ask for peace? And, you know, this guy that just gives me things all the time. Our perception of Jesus doesn't add up. And sometimes what we believe about Jesus just isn't true. I want to throw that out there today. Sometimes what we believe about Jesus just isn't true, because we tend to believe that God is this kind and sweet guy, that he would not ever hurt anyone. In American Christianity, By and large, the word blessed is synonymous with health and wealth, right? When you say God is blessing me, that means that financially you're okay and, and, and your health is going okay, right? Because if you're hurting financially and your health isn't okay and someone asked if you're blessed, most Christians would say, no, I, you know, I'm not feeling blessed right now because their version of being blessed by God is that they're healthy and that they're wealthy, Right? It's the American dream, and we have this view of God as kind of winking and nodding at the American dream, that God exists. You know, God's like our best investor. He's just always investing in us. And we say, I'm happy with this belief. You know, many of us are happy with that. It reminds me of a film that came out a few years ago, a movie, and um, Will Ferrell is a NASCAR driver in this film, Ricky Bobby, and uh, he's he's sitting at his dining room table with his family and he's and he's saying grace and they're holding hands and his wife is across the table from him and his best friend cal nodding jr sitting right next to him and his two boys are are sitting on his other side and and he's praying to the baby jesus dear lord baby jesus you know i just thank you for this mansion dear lord baby jesus i just thank you for the 22 million dollars dear lord baby jesus and his wife cuts in and says you know honey Jesus grew up, and he became a man. You don't always have to pray to the baby. In fact, it's a little odd and off-putting to pray to a baby, she says. And Will Farrell goes, well, I like the Christmas Jesus best, you know? When you pray, you can pray to the teenage Jesus or the bearded Jesus or whoever you want. And his buddy Cal cuts in, and he's like, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo print t-shirt because it says, hey, I'm kind of serious, but I also, I like to party, and I like to think about Jesus partying because I like to party and I like my Jesus to party and his wife cuts him off and he's like, you know what? I just want you to pray real good so God will let you win tomorrow so they go back and they bow their heads dear eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus in your gold fleece diapers so cuddly now it's, it's kind of an offensive picture and the movie's not meant to, to glorify or edify God, but I don't think that it's any more offensive or less edifying to God than the place where we find ourselves when we're praying to some Jesus that is someone other than who the Bible reveals him to be. When we, when we place expectations on Jesus, self-serving expectations on Jesus, and we're just praying, just focused on our needs and our wants and our desires in our lives— I don't think that that scene is that far off because, see, the Jesus that's revealed in Matthew chapter 11, he's kind, he doesn't seem to be like taken off of his stride by the fact that John is in prison. Are you okay with Jesus if, if he's just fine with you being in prison or going through hardships? And what, I've, what I came to to realize here is that we need to, to recognize that Jesus, not, neither Jesus nor the kingdom that he brings, is designed for our worldly comfort. As we go into a new year, we need to realize that Jesus and his kingdom aren't tailor-made to make you comfortable. They're not. So how do you know? How do you know if you're Worshiping some false god, some, some Jesus that you've contrived, some Jesus that fits comfortably into your lifestyle. How do you know if, if you're off, if you're not worshiping the biblical Jesus? And the first, the first way I'd like to suggest is if you're just really being honest with yourself and with God. Just asking yourself, who's getting the glory out of this relationship? As you're pursuing a relationship with God, is, is God getting the glory or are you getting the glory? Because it's important to see that God's kingdom operates God's way and it doesn't operate our way, despite the fact that practically that's the way many of us live out our, our Christian walks, as if God exists to please me. We're not the main focus of God's kingdom. God is. He's the king. And the point I want to make with this is that God, care, as king, God cares about his glory, and we exist to glorify God. God doesn't exist to glorify us. I mean, God's kingdom is only good because it's all about God, right? If it was even a little bit about you, it wouldn't be any good at all for me. See, God is completely independent. He doesn't need us. But we are completely dependent. We absolutely need God. And so often we get that switched. Because the America, in, in America, it's real easy for us to see ourselves as being the, you know, the self-made man, the self-sufficient, independent guy that can just pick up the red line, you know, when, when we're in a squeeze. And Jesus will bless us with, with what, whatever, whatever we're looking for. Somehow we always get that mixed up. We think that God exists for our glory when we exist for His. And I want to share this quote with, from John Piper with you guys. It's out of his book, God is the Gospel. It says, Do you feel more loved because God makes much of you or because at the cost of His Son, He enables you to enjoy making much of Him forever? if your God exists to bless you, then you don't know the God of the Bible. Because that's, that's not the God that's revealed in the Bible, that, that, that God exists to bless you. Because God is only good, according to this John, John Piper's way of explaining this, is that God is only good because he provides a way for us to worship him and know him. That's what makes God good. Then the second way you can tell if you're worshiping a biblical Jesus from this passage is, you ask yourself the question, is my, Jesus, is my Jesus scandalous? And I mean that in the sense that we're using the word here. Does is my Jesus come against my expectations? When my expectations are tweaked, you know, is Jesus still faithful to his word? Does he still come in power and humility? Because the nature of Jesus' kingdom that he brings, the very, the very core of this kingdom is a sin problem. God is holy and God is just. And we are not. We're tainted by sin. Hopelessly entrapped by sin. Because of the power of sin, we're eternally separated from God. So Jesus brings in this kingdom, and this kingdom is Crazy. This kingdom operates on the premise that someone has to die in order for someone else to live. That's Jesus' ministry. Jesus came to earth to die. God sends His Son into the earth in human form to live a perfect life, to die a perfect death as a sacrifice for our sins. Heaps all the sin of humanity on him as he's dying on the cross. And then he raises him from the dead, defeating sin. And then there's this great exchange that takes place by God's grace through faith. Jesus actually exchanges his righteousness for our sin. And apart from this sacrifice, you cannot know God. This is what Jesus' kingdom is all about. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you have to be born again, which means that you have to die and new life has to come back out. You cannot be born again apart from Jesus. You're hopelessly dead in your sin. Because this is what brings God's glo- God glory. God glory that we would exist to glorify Him, that that we would be transformed into His image. And we want to see God invade with power that we understand. We're not expecting a kingdom that comes to save us from sin necessarily. That's cool, and we can agree with that, you know. We've got sort of this fire insurance image of, of God's kingdom in that respect. But really, practically, I think many American Christians are more focused on the blessings of God and not God Himself. We want to see God come in a way that we expect. We want to see God come and right wrongs here on earth. Other wrongs, you know. And for those of us that want these things, for those of us that have these expectations of Jesus, these, these, we're expecting things that are counter to his kingdom. We're tripping over Jesus and we're missing him. And much of the American church is tripping over this controversial, scandalous kingdom that's coming against the expectations of man. And this morning, I just wanted to help share an, an explanation of what the Lord put on my heart in this passage. And then, as Jesus reveals this kingdom of His, as Jesus reveals His plan for salvation, this is, this is the plan to save humanity. You want to know hope? Here's the hope. It's this crazy kingdom. If you want to know Jesus after hearing about this, you need to know that it's probably going to cost you your comfort. That sounds crazy because American Christianity doesn't look that way. In fact, a lot of American Christianity sounds the other way. You know that God is blessing your socks off when your business is doing well or you're making money. I look at the Bible and that's just not true. John the Baptist was beheaded in prison. Paul wasn't blessed by God in that way, but that's what we expect. We don't expect Jesus to come and fly in the face of of our priorities. And so today, as we're confronted with this Jesus that, that wants to change us, this Jesus that's coming in such a way that he's not necessarily meeting our expectations. I really want to challenge you guys to realize that, that you're in a great place. You're in a great place to receive that truth today. You're in a great place to understand this kingdom today. And I want to tell you why from the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. It's just so beautiful starting in the middle of verse 1, it says, This faith was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. God gives you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. By His divine power, God has given us everything we need for a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know Him, the One who called us to Himself by means of His marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. See, the truth of the matter is that we mess things up, everything (laughs) in our flesh. We mess up Jesus. We misinterpret scripture. We mess up the kingdom of God. But the bigger message today, the bigger truth today is that God loves us. God loves you. No matter how badly you've messed that up, no matter how skewed your perception of Jesus may have been in the past, this passage is saying that God gives you everything you need, that you're sitting there right now fully equipped to live in the kingdom of God. And I want to challenge each of us this morning that that we respond to this. Do you believe that God gives you the faith it takes to step out in faith and to engage and participate in this radical kingdom? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God gives you that? Because that's what it says here in 2 Peter. The, the, The writer of the book of Hebrews says that Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, the author and perfecter of your faith. As some people just say, well, I just don't believe. God gives you that faith. You need to step out and respond. Here in this building, we, we provide these carpets up front. So during the times of worship, a lot of people like to come forward and kneel or lay down. And you're welcome to do that. I want to invite you to do that. If you've never done, you know, and, and it's something that you feel the Lord put on your heart, do if you don't, don't. I don't care. But I'm just saying, that's what they're here for. The communion elements are up here. You cracker, dip in the juice. I know some people don't know where stuff is, whatever. But I want to just take all of those barriers away today because the Lord is calling us to respond. And some of us, it's, it's like get up and get on your face before God and repent that we've been following some false, some lesser Jesus, some, some idol that we've created in our heart. Because as we go into the new year, we don't want to be stumbling over this kingdom that we hear about each week, hopefully. So I just want to invite you to come forward and respond to this, that, that today as we set out in the new year, that we really fix our eyes on Jesus, that we really grow a biblical faith, that we really pursue this, this kingdom that we don't just come and, and expect God to exchange material blessings for our church attendance, but this is a week that we really expect to see this crazy, unexpected kingdom here on earth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for your word, and God, I thank you that, that your word is truth, Lord. It's so refreshing and so good to, to be able to cling to truth, God. And Lord, today I know you're calling many of us to, to confess our, our idols, to confess our, our misconceptions of you, Lord, and to, to confess those things and to repent, which means to turn away from them and turn towards you today, God. And Jesus, I just ask you to replace our selfish hearts right now with hearts of worship, Lord. God, that we would really press in and boldly approach your throne of grace as, as we proclaim your name and as we sing to you, God. And we love you, Jesus. Just ask you for a move of your spirit now as we, as we worship. Pray this for your glory. Amen.